Welcome to Talking Sports with Sports Programming, a podcast of the sports programming class at Arkansas State University's Creative Media Production Department. Now, let's talk sports with the sports programming class. Welcome to All Things A-State Athletics. My name is Ella Jane Britt, and I'll be sitting here with you for the next five to eight minutes and telling you all about the athletics here at Arkansas State. First off, let me talk about a few things I'll be talking about on this podcast. I'll be talking anywhere from volleyball, golf, tennis, football, basketball, baseball, all the different forms here at Arkansas State. And that's just a few of the major sports I'm involved with and love being able to be a part of here on the ESPN Plus crew that I work with at Arkansas State. So just to start off, one of the big things that happened this past week at Arkansas State on the athletics side is us playing Memphis. That was one of the most played rivalries we have here at Arkansas State. And personally, I wasn't at the game, but I did get to hear from a few people that were at the game that it was the most crazy, surprising, almost nail-biting experience they had been at for an A-State athletic event in a long time. Now, Arkansas State and Memphis played, so that was just across the Little River going into Tennessee that we had played in a long time. I mean, we tend to play it every year, but in the past it had been one of the games everybody was dreading to watch. But this year, just by seeing the team that we have and the football players that we have, everybody was excited to watch this game. Now, ASU did fall short to Memphis, making it a 44-32 to final. We dropped, and I mean... At the going towards halftime, we were sitting very close with Memphis, almost thinking that we were going to pull a win out at the end of that. Now, just to get a little more in depth, Memphis did have uh, two rushing touchdowns within the last three minutes of that game. So that is what led them to winning against us, Arkansas State. James Blackman completed a 25 of 34 passes, adding up to 275 yards, along with two touchdowns. And he did not throw an interception during that game, which is really surprising. Now, just by seeing what James Blackman has done here at Arkansas State so far, I believe that he will be a good competitor when we are playing the other teams. Brian Sneed rushed for two touchdowns, making that the best 66 yards on 13 carries. He was one of the first Arkansas State running backs to record multiple touchdowns in one game since Marcel Murray had three and UL three of those back in 2019 against ULM. Our defensive linebacker, Jordan Karamuche, racked up a career high of 13 tackles and tailed seven ta- and tailed, tallied seven tackles for a loss. Now, the Scarlet and Black struck first on, Black, on James Blackman's 51-yard connection with Terror, but Memphis responded correctly on the next drive, making that a 16-yard touchdown pass from Seth Hennigan to Caden Priscorn. Hennigan completed 19 of 28 passes, making that 360 yards for three touchdowns. Two of those came from Priscorn. A-State reclaimed a 14-7 lead on Snead's first touchdown carry of the day as he plunged across the line from 
one yard out early in the second. Hennigan found Preskin again for the ensuing drive, making that a 21-yard score to tie it at 14. Now, what I think is personally crazy is that neither team, nor Arkansas State or Memphis, scored in the third quarter. But the Tigers made up for that in a two-score affair early in the fourth quarter, making that a 51-yard touchdown pass from Hennigan to Joe Skates to make that adding up to 28-17. to Memphis was ahead. Sneed pulled his team in with a three yard rushing touchdown just a minute later after that. And Blackman completed a pass to Lang in the end of the zone to the end zone in a successful two-point try. Now that two-point try did not succeed, but it was the thought that counts in my opinion. Memphis went to add for three more on a 47-yard field goal by Chris Howard to make that adding up to 31 to 25. A-State was still trailing then. And that was within eight minutes and 55 seconds left to play. The Red Wolves did not go away as Blackman found Lang for a 27-yard touchdown pass to give them, making that a 32-31 score with 4.22 left remaining in the game. Now that makes it all for Arkansas State in their first three-game road stretch. Next Saturday, they're set to traveling to Norfolk, Virginia for another Sunbelt Conference game, and we will see what the game stats will be getting later to time for that game. Next up is seeing what else we have on Arkansas State Athletics and keeping up with everything that's going here at Arkansas State. That was it for football, but next is on to Arkansas State Athletics women's volleyball. The women's volleyball team played an SFA Invitational over this past weekend where they sadly did not come out with a win. They ended it with a three-set loss to SFA. Now, ASU trailed every time, making it a nail-biter of a game. First set, SFA 25, ASU 17. Next set, SFA 25 once again, Arkansas State 18. The last set was a little closer, making it a 25-21 loss. Macy Putt led Arkansas State with nine kills, while Elise Wilcox and Laeda Dicer added six apiece. But Putt also registered three aces, while Wilcox accounted for a pair. And Lauren Masante tallied 17 assists in seven digs. Now, asking a volleyball player from the past, that seems like a pretty great game to me because you're adding all of these aces, which is what goes on a serve, and then you're adding kills, which is great to end a rally, even if it is a nail-biting moment. Here's where we get to the really good part about Arkansas State women's volleyball, finishing out, sadly, the third straight set loss against SFA. The Rebels started off strong against in the in that third set, leading 4-1 to one after a solo block by Wasira, SFA clawed back really close, making it a tie at 8-all. On aces before, making a 4-0 run by A-State, capped off by Cassidy Reeves, making it out to a 12-8, and that was a forced timeout from one of the coaches. The Lady Jacks also tied to make it 16 after a 3-0 run to force an A-State timeout, making that... When you set to timeouts, especially while somebody is serving, that makes it really hard for the person serving to get back right on that line after a timeout and say, okay, I'm going to throw this ball up in the air and I'm going to be ready from there for us to get another score yet again. When you do that, that is one of the coach's ways of saying, let's get in her head and let's make her worry and not want to score on us so we can get the ball back. Because volleyball is a game of almost like a roller coaster. It's Whoever has the ball in their court 
and they're wanting to make that all the way to the end of a 25 set. Now, sadly, this is all I have time for to talk about this week, but next week I will keep you updated, not only on football and volleyball, but what else Arkansas State Athletics has going on this year. Mario Cristobal coming in from 
Morgan into Miami has put, to very, uh, put together a very solid team. Uh, but one, another team that's just going to be tested for the first time as they head to Texas A&M. Uh, number 15, I have Penn State. I have this team a little bit higher than uh, a lot of people do, but I take highly into account that they beat Purdue at Purdue opening week. Uh, and their rushing game, if it's on point, then they look threatening. Another team that's going to be tested as they head to Auburn. Number 16, I got NC State or North Carolina State. Uh, to be frank, they should have lost to Eastern Carolina if they could have made field goals, but they had a great bounce back game versus Charleston Southern. At 17, I have Utah. Uh, they're going to be our first one-loss team so far. Uh, they lost week one at Florida, but they came out with vengeance after that, after pretty much bullying Southern Utah 73-7. Number 18, I've got Baylor. They had a tough uh, loss on the road to before mentioned BYU, but I still think they're a really well-coached team, and they should. I don't think they should slip too much after that rough uh, environment they had to play in at BYU. Number 19, I have Florida. I already mentioned both of their opponents. They had the loss to Kentucky, but a big win against Utah. Anthony Richardson, though, is very concerning to me because when he looks on point, he's a complete threat and Heisman candidate. But when he's not, he doesn't look like a capable quarterback. So, which uh, Anthony Richardson are we going to get, or which game is going to turn out? How Florida's record is going to be? Number 20, I have Mississippi State. They haven't played anybody, but I'm extremely impressed with their passing game, especially with Will Rogers being their quarterback. He's a very experienced. I think a lot of people are going to sleep on Mississippi State until they play LSU this weekend, and I think they go into LSU and beat them. That is a prediction I'll give you all. Uh, 21, I have Cincinnati. Uh, straight up, I don't think they're going to lose another game this season, and people are just underrating them and Arkansas, who happen to be the team that beat them. Uh, watch out, Cincinnati's going to finish 11-1. Uh, 22, I have Ole Miss. I haven't seen anything special about them so far, but they've kind of just done their job against inferior opponents. Uh, I feel like they could have scored a little bit more against Troy, but it's just going to be a team that I haven't really gotten a feel of just yet. 23, I got Wake Forest. Uh, their best wins against Vanderbilt, uh, but I'll be very interested in their matchup in Week 4 versus Clemson. It's just another team you're going to kind of keep your eye on. Uh, Kansas State at 24. They manhandled Missouri last week, and I think they're a team that can cause some real waves in the Big 12. And then number 25, Marshall, the team that took down game last week. Uh, the Sun Belt looks real fun this year. And then two teams that I kind of left off in honorable mentions that people have seen a lot in polls is Texas. They're one and one. I said don't overreact with how close they played Alabama. They still lost. And then Texas A&M. Their offense has looked absolutely horrible. Their defense isn't much better. And if they lose to Miami this week, we could be in for a fun ride watching their team collapse from the inside. Well, that's going to do it for this podcast segment. I hope you guys enjoy the rest of everybody else's. City, how are we doing this Monday? I'm Easton John, and this is my new show called Around Arrowhead. And the reason why I wanted to do this show is because I love Chiefs football, man. It gets me excited every year when the time comes around, when September rolls around, 
and I am this show will be mostly about me talking about the the game that happened last week or how we did and just Chiefs news updating you guys on all that great stuff but without further ado let's hop right into what happened last week so last week on Sunday 3:30 p.m. the Kansas City Chiefs rolled into Arizona and destroyed those Cardinals and this is what I wanted to see. I wanted us to come out week one just fired up and playing solid football and that we did and it's all because of that bad man Patrick Mahomes the second entering in his fifth year as an uh, as a NFL QB and look check out these stats from Pat Mahomes man. He had an astonishing game and he went 30 for 39 with a total of 360 passing yards and just for the cherry on top you know the little whenever you get a milkshake they whip up that that whipped cream and then they put that cherry on top he had five touchdown passes in that game and wow isn't that exceptional and this is why people say he is the best quarterback in the league right now and that's what I think too not just because I'm from the greatest city Kansas City, Missouri, and not only home to the greatest barbecue in the world, but also to the legendary quarterback Patrick Patrick Mahomes, and I'm so glad he is our quarterback. But he didn't do; he wasn't the main person. There was also Isaiah Pacheco, Clyde Edward Delaire, and Jarek McKinnon. Baby, those two, those three guys were just a one-two-three combo for the Cardinals. Man, they were running it down the gut. They did their jobs as the running back, and Isaiah Pacheco had a total of 62 rushing yards. Clyde edwards Lair had 42, and Jarek McKinnon had 22. But, man, they, whenever they got in, they got the job done, got averaged about five yards per carry. Isaiah Pacheco actually got into the end zone, which is very – I mean, that's, that's what you – I mean, from a rookie, I mean, that's what you want to see, man. You want to see him getting all the action and stuff. And so I'm – I'm glad that he got his opportunity to get in and get a touchdown. But also, on the receiving end of the game, we head over to Travis Kelsey. And boy, if you had him in fantasy football, you should be excited and you should never drop this man from your roster. He had a total of eight receptions for 121 yards with a touchdown. Now, if you do the math right now, let's pull out the calculators. He had eight receptions with 121 yards, just like I said. That's an average of 15 yards per catch. I mean, that's that's freaking crazy. And um, so, I mean, this, this team looks absolutely phenomenal. I mean, it's not only Travis Kelsey on the receiving end. It's Juju Smith-Schuster did his job. Scantling did his job, too. And then whenever Patrick Mahomes wouldn't see anything downfield, he'd be like, all right, I'm not going to force the pass. I'm not going to force one downfield. I'm just going to dink and dunk it over to my boy Clyde Edwards-Hilaire and have him do his job as a the pit bull that he is. And I'm excited about this Chiefs season, man. And they did very well on the offensive side. Now we go over to the defense, defensive side. And my favorite play, defensive player, Nick Bolton from the University of Missouri, his second year, and he did fantastic. I, I just love to see him in and get all the action and doing his job but also Legereus Sneed had a huge sack on Kyler Murray and he just unblocked came out of nowhere and just 
<laughs> rung his bell and said, hello, I'm here too. And then also Willie Gay had was in there. He's he's my other favorite linebacker, and he was he was he was definitely there. He was he made his presence. And then well, how about Justin Reed coming in for an extra point, and then all and making the extra point, and then also kicking it through the uprights during a kickoff. Man, that's I was so surprised. I know he did it during the preseason for fun, and he nailed that one in the preseason. Um, but I was just like, I wonder how he do in a in an actual game, and he did absolutely phenomenal. He kicked it straight through with ease, and it, I mean, I wouldn't mind if he's our kicker, but you know what? I I feel more comfortable with Harrison Butker in, but you know what? If Justin Reed is our backup, I'm just fine with that. Now the next thing I wanted to talk about was this game against the Chargers, and this is not going to be an easy game. This is definitely going to be more of a challenge. You know, we just played on Sunday, and it's a quick turnaround, that, and we got to play on Thursday on a Amazon Prime video. So what the Chiefs need to do is put that win against Arizona behind them and move on to the next game and realize that this Chargers team is hungry. They're wanting to, wanting to take over the division. So let's, let's show them who the Kansas City Chiefs are and show them why we've won six straight AFC West championship games. Um, or not championship games but you know what I mean um but that's going to be it for this first segment of the show uh again I'm very happy to be doing this for you guys and I hope we can have some fun talking about the Chiefs and yeah this has been Around Arrowhead and I'll see you guys later Welcome to Out of the Water. I'm your host, Lily Guth, and in this show, we're going to be discussing various sports within the NCAA that often go unaccounted for. Today, we're going to discuss competitive swimming. These swim competitions take place in a 25-yard pool, and they are a series of different timed races that include four different swim strokes. Butterfly, backstroke, breaststroke, and of course, freestyle. In all divisions of the sport, each swimmer will most likely participate in all strokes, but specialize in one in particular. Because these swimmers like you know, they practice and they compete growing up. They're going to like have their one, that one particular stroke that they're good at, that they're going to break records, that they're going to get recruited for. And that's just going to be their specialty throughout their life. Of course, they're going to switch and jump back and forth, but they're going to have that one. One recent issue to occur in the NCAA is the participation of transgender woman Leah Thomas. The NCAA does not discriminate against anyone who has transitioned anyone of the lgbtq community or anything like that but this recent competitor caused a lot of rise within the swimming community and that is merely because leah thomas already competed as a man leah thomas competed on the pennsylvania state men's team three years before transitioning and moving to the women's team where she began setting multiple program records this caused a lot of ruckus in the swimming community because these competitors and these coaches and these teams see it as a way of cheating the system. They recently nominated Leah Thomas as Woman of the Year for the NCAA. This caused FINA to vote to restrict her participation. Leah's peers, her female competitors, had a bit of trouble accepting this as they have trained their whole lives just to be um, 
and in the position they're in right now. They probably started when they were about, you know, five or seven. They've worked all the way up to this point and they're in D1 swimming and it's, you know, it's a really high competitive field. And the reason that they have so much stipulation with this is because if we look at the men's times for competitive swimming, their, you know, their standards are like way up here. These times are way faster than if you look over here at the women's times, which are way down here. It's not the same. Men are like biologically going to go a lot faster than women. And there are multiple factors that go into this. And a lot of people say, you know, men and women are not born the same. They're not built the same. It's different. That is because men are born taller. To, they have testosterone. They have more metabolism. They build muscle much better and easier. They are just, they. it's just a lot easier for them to, you know, do certain things. Such as compete in a really competitive field. Hey, you know, what about me? Like, I wasn't born six foot tall. I don't have that much testosterone. I don't have that kind of metabolism. This isn't fair. And, you know, I think they have a very valid point. And I especially think that we need to consider who's in charge of these fields. Who's running this? Who's, who's you know, regulating the transgender community and saying what they can and can't do when it comes to sports. And by no means do I ever think that discrimination is going to be the answer. But if you look at what happened last year with Olympic runner Caster Semanya, she wanted to compete as a woman, being born biologically a woman. But due to the fact that her testosterone was too high, she was unable to complete, compete in the Olympics just because of her natural testosterone. And yet they're letting Leah Thomas compete as a born man, knowing that he, she has a lot of testosterone. And so I think there's a lot of things to be looked at in this situation, and there's a lot of viewpoints from it. You know, I, I feel somewhat pity for the girls who are competing in this and who, you know, feel as it, it's unfair. But, you know, I also wish and hope that, you know, Leah Thomas can be herself fully and still do what she loves. But I think that there comes a point where if you've already tried as a male in the NCAA or in the Olympics, and then you jump into female, I think that that's drawing the line. Like, I think that that might actually be unfair. Thank you for listening today to Out of the Water. I'm your host, Lily Guth. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Spotlight Lane, the podcast segment where we talk about a certain NASCAR driver and how great he is. I'm your host, Ivan Rash, and today we're going to be talking about a particularly special driver in NASCAR. It's Bubba Wallace in, in the Cup Series. He drives for 2311 Racing. He started out driving the number 23 car, but later on, at the start of the playoffs, he started driving the number 45 car, which was normally driven by Kurt Busch. We'll get more into that change later. But right now, it's time to talk about him and his career in, the, in NASCAR. Now, he started out in truck series driving for Kyle Busch Motorsports, and during his time in that, in that series, he managed to win a whopping six races, and that made him the first African-American since Wendell Scott to win a race in any of NASCAR's three divisions. And six races, well, uh, that's pretty impressive. After that, he raced in the Xfinity Series, where he drove the number six Ford for Roush Fenway Racing, though uh, he ran into a little trouble in the 2017 season because he had to be let go since there was no sponsorship for the car. However, his big break soon followed because at around that time, uh, Eric Almarola had been injured while racing at Kansas and 
Richard Petty Motorsports needed someone to drive their number 43 car, and that's where Bubba came in. He was brought in to drive the car for starting at the tw at the Exalta Presents the Pocono 400, and he raced in it for every other race after that. Except uh, at Sonoma, where he was replaced by road course ringer Billy Johnson. His best finish driving the car was 11th at, Can at Kentucky. Af eventually, at the New Hampshire race, Eric Almirola managed to recover from his injuries, and he reassumed his driving duties in the car. After that, uh, Bubba was out of a job, until eventually, he was picked up by Richard Petty Motorsports to drive the number 43 car again in 2018, this time full-time, because Eric Almirola had left the ride. He started out his full-time career with them with a bang, because he finished second place in that year's Daytona 500, the highest finishing po position for an African-American in that race. After that, well, his season was uh, mediocre at best, and he ended up finishing second to William Byron for Rookie of the Year honors. After that, well, he continued racing with the team, and 2019, uh, that was a pretty impressive year. A big highlight for him was finishing first in the second stage of the Monster Energy Open, and that qualified him for the All-Star Race, where he finished fifth place. In 2020, uh, he ran into a bit of controversy. See, here's what happened then. Uh, when NASCAR went all virtual because of the COVID-19 pandemic for, for a temporary period of time, he was racing in the iRacing series, and during an event at Bristol, he got involved in a, in a wreck on lap 11, and he rage quit the game. This, uh, this was not very good, well received, and Blue Emu, one of the sponsors for his virtual 43 car, dropped their sponsorship because of that. Yeah, I, I can't blame him. That was pretty shoddy of, of Bubba to do. Anyways, uh, but things got better for Bubba in 2021. He had left Richard Petty Motorsports, which I'm pretty sure is because of a contract thing, and he ended up joining a new NASCAR team, 2311 Racing, which was formed by veteran driver Denny Hamlin and Michael Jordan. That's right, THE Michael Jordan, the famous former pro basketball player. Now Bubba, his team, his first season with them, it wasn't really much to talk about. That is, until the Yellowwood 500 at Talladega that fall, where he made headlines by winning the race. I mean, sure, the race was called to, for rain, but still, a win is a win, and that was a pretty big one for Bubba. It made him the first African-American since Wendell Scott to win a Cup Series race. <laughs> yeah, that that was pretty great to, to witness. And this year, well, he's been having a pretty good season so far. It, he started out by finishing second in the, in the 2022 Daytona 500, just like he did in 2018. <laughs> he was so close to winning, I, I gotta tell you. He spent most of it battling Austin Sindrick, the eventual winner of the race. And uh, earlier this year, uh, close to the playoffs, uh, he had a pretty good run in, in the races. He also managed to get a pole at the race in Michigan. <laughs> yeah, that was a... Uh, that was his first career poll, and I gotta hand it to him. That, that's impressive. He also almost won that Michigan race, but he ended up getting passed by Kevin Harvick and couldn't catch up to him. That was, uh, that was pretty frustrating to see, you know. I, I was really rooting for him. When the playoffs came, uh, he made a little change to his racing, you see. 
he drove he started driving the number 45 car which is normally driven by kurt bush and had been driven by ty gibbs previously because bush has been out for a while because of concussion issues the reason bubba did this was because he wants to help 2311 racing win the the manufacturer's championship i mean the owner's championship and since kurt bush had previously won a race driving the number 45 car will help him do that and let me tell you, this change really paid off, because recently, at Kansas, Bubba Wallace managed to pass Denny Hamlin and hold him off, and then win the race. <laughs> I was pretty big, you know? It was the first race he won that wasn't shortened because of rain or other issues, and it also makes him the, the second I mean, the first driver to have Af who's African-American to have multiple wins in the Cup Series. Yeah, that was pretty great to watch. <laughs> yeah, definitely one of my favorite races. So anyways, you're probably wondering, what do I think of Bubba? Well, I think he's great, you know? I mean, sure, he he doesn't always get good results, and people say that he's just, uh, he's just there for diversity reasons, you know, to make NASCAR seem more diverse. And well, yeah, that's... Uh, that's pretty shameless of them to think, but I think he's a pretty good driver, you know? It, sure, he didn't exactly have a, a very big start in his career in the Cup Series, but he gained momentum, and pretty soon, well, <laughs> that led to this. Him be him becoming the first driver to win more than one races in, a, in NASCAR as an African-American. <laughs> yeah, I gotta hand it to you. Some people may hate him, but I think Bubba Wallace is great. Definitely one of the most successful in the sport. Well, anyways, uh, that's about it for this segment. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll race over next time. See you then. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Basics in 5. Basics in 5 is a podcast all about teaching new sports fans all the basics they need to know in a timely manner. I'm your host today, Dalton Adams, joined with my first guest ever and my roommate, Ty Phillips. Thank you for having me today, Dalton. Much appreciated. Always. Today's topic is going to be offensive, the offensive side sorry, of football. Today we'll talk about the quarterback, the running back, the wide receiver, the center, the offensive guard, the offensive tackle, and the tight end. Now, Ty, you played some football in high school. How, how about you get us started with the quarterback's role? Yeah, so the quarterback is mostly the field general, and so he has a lot of command on the field. Now, he has a couple options whenever he's about to have a play. So he can either hand it off to the running back and they can run the ball, or he can drop back and just kind of, you know, mail that ball over to the wide receiver whose objective is to catch the football. Well said, Ty. Um, and then next on our list is going to be the running back. The running back is uh, quite essential, as all these players are. Uh, the running back's primary role is to receive handoffs from the quarterback and then rush the ball down the field. The running back can also block the block on the line and addition, and can be an additional receiver to catch the ball. Well said. So that also brings us to the receiver. The receiver has a very vital role where he has a more range as a running back just is kind of really short distance. So the wide receiver's job is to catch the football when thrown by the quarterback. He can go he can run multiple routes to outmaneuver the safeties or cornerbacks that are covering the wide receivers. 
uh, that you primarily want them to be, the wide receivers primarily want to be faster and more agile. So your more agile players are going to be that role in the field. Okay. Uh, that brings us to our next role. Um, we're going to be covering the center. The center is the leader of the offensive line. You'll see the center are often among the smartest members of the football team because they really just play out everything that's going to happen before the snap because they're in complete control of the ball. Um, they do blocking adjustments and uh, line calls all before the snap, uh, as well as obviously snapping the ball. Now, Ty, now that we're done with that role, why don't you explain the offensive guards and the offensive tackles for us? Yes, absolutely. So these are going to be your two big – I mean, you want your big boys in. These are going to be your four big guys. But your guards are going to also have to be faster because they can run what's called like a pull. And so whenever the ball is snapped, the guards run to the other side and their objective is to hit the incoming linebackers that are trying to sack your quarterback. So their job is to mostly pull and do pass protection, which protects the quarterback during a pass. Now the tackles are your big tall dudes. They're supposed to kind of protect the blind side of your quarterback. So any linebackers coming off on the end, they they get really met up with the tackle. The tackle also down blocks and just overall is just kind of that driving factor of your line. All right, well said. And that brings us to our final role on the offensive side of the football field. That is going to be the tight end. The tight end is like your hybrid player. He can receive or he can be on the line. Generally, he lines up next to either the left tackle or the right tackle. Or he can split out and line up on the side like a receiver would. Um, his duties include both blocking uh, for the quarterback and the running back, but he can also run the field and catch passes. That is well put, Dalton. Another thing to add to the tight end, <clears throat> they're normally tall, but they're also very quick. So they're, one, they're, a very, they're a big threat because, as you'll see, these NFL teams also normally have that tight end in motion or in play, and so there's, they're really hard to stop if you do not know what you're doing. Very well said, Ty. So that wraps it up there. So we'll go right over, just run it through a quick again. Um, you have a uh, first member where we covered, the quarterback, who is the general of the field. He initiates actions, handles snaps, uh, runs the ball, uh, passes the ball, uh, whatever you need to do to go down the field. And then we have next up uh, would be our running backs, which is our primary receiver uh, or handoff, I should say, uh, from the quarterback. But he can also run as a, a blocker. And then it's also we have the wide receivers, which are known for our forward passing. They uh, catch the balls forward and they stand on the outside of our O-line and uh, run the ball down the field if they are on a passing play. And then we have our um, O-linemen, which would be our offensive guards and offensive tackles, who are in charge of just keeping the ball in place away from the defending team obviously just uh they're bigger guys you know keep running keeping that o-line safe along with the center who's pretty much in charge of that who will be in charge of telling where you need to go uh doing blocking however you need to and then last we we covered our um our um sorry excuse me our tight end who is our kind of our all everywhere player he's either going to be uh left to the t uh, to the uh, left tackle or the right tackle and he can split out either way he can be a receiver and but he's mainly also in charge of blocking for the quarterback and the running back well said all right and that will wrap us up today thank you for joining us with basics in five we'll see you again in two weeks
What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Jesus, and this is the first episode of my first podcast segment called La Eib. Every week, I'll be previewing the teams of the upcoming 2022 World Cup taking place later this year in Qatar, and I'll be giving my predictions from the group stage all the way to the final game. La Eib, which I have chosen to name this segment after, is the official mascot for this year's tournament. It is an Arabic word meaning skillful player. Before we get into the predictions and all that, Throughout this first episode, I want to dive into the rich history of the World Cup, FIFA, and how it got to where it is today. Although there are many accomplishments, tournaments, and trophies a professional player soccer player can be decorated with, there is one single trophy every player dreams of getting, and that's the World Cup. The beautiful game, as many call it, is arguably the most popular game in the world, although it might not seem that way in the US. To put in perspective the size and importance of this special tournament, in 2018, the tournament reached over 3 billion people worldwide and over 1 billion people watched the final game. That's almost half of the world's population, compared to the Super Bowl which averages over only 100 million viewers. The World Cup is managed by the International Federation of Association Football, or FIFA for short. The association began as a group of seven associations who wanted to see more countries play together. They came together on May 2nd, 1904 and created the federation to unify and govern the laws to make the game more fair and clear to everybody. To this day, it now has over 209 represented associations. That's more than the United Nations have. Leading up to the 1928 Olympics, soccer, or football as many call it, saw itself becoming the world's most loved and widespread sport. And after Uruguay won the soccer tournament of the Olympics, there was a great want for a big worldwide soccer tournament to see who was the best in the world. So in the summer of 1928, FIFA voted on having a so-called football Olympics and to also have it every four years just like the Olympics. The start date was set to be in the summer of 1930 in Uruguay as the reigning champions would host it. Also, since overseas transportation back then was only available through ship, the trip from Europe to South America would take over three weeks, so only four European countries were represented. Because of this, there were some English players that played on behalf of the United States team. In this first cup, there were only 16 teams, and Uruguay would go on to beat Argentina 4-2 in the first ever World Cup final. So I know many of you are wondering, how does a country qualify for the World Cup? Currently, there are only 32 spots in total. One spot automatically goes to the host country, this year being Qatar. So there are 31 spots in which over 209 associations compete for. The spots are weighted geographically so that the best teams around the globe are able to compete. Therefore, Europe gets 13 spots, South America gets 4.5, Africa gets 5, Asia gets 4.5, North and Central America get 3.5, and the Oceanic Islands get only 0.5. Once the 32 teams are chosen, they are split into four groups ranking from the highest ranked team to the lowest. Once the 32 teams are chosen, they are split into four groups or pots, each pot ranking from the highest ranked teams to the lowest ranked. One team is picked out from each pot, making a total of eight groups, with four teams in each one. 
The group with the hardest team is usually referred to as a group of death, with this year's includes two former champions, Spain and Germany, along with Costa Rica and Japan, all in Group E. This year, the United States was drawn into Group B along with England, Iran, and Wales. This year's cup is set to kick off November 20th with the final game scheduled on the 18th of December. The cup is usually in the summertime, but to avoid the immense heat in Qatar during the summertime, FIFA decided to move it to the wintertime. This year, both Brazil and France are the top two favorites to win the final, but we'll get into predictions later on in future segments. I hope this brief history of the World Cup will give you a more clear understanding on how this all works and why some teams get in and some don't. Join me next time as I break down the teams group by group and give my predictions on how they do in the tournament. I'll also be highlighting some of the stadiums and dive into the next cup which is set to be hosted here on our home turf in North America in 2026. Thank y'all for listening and see you next time. Hello ladies and gentlemen. My name is Austin Sweat, and I'm here to give you a little bit of a fantasy update this week. Um, this is mainly focusing on last week's Week 1 rankings of players. I'm going to give you a little bit of the top players, my thoughts on certain things, and I'll give a little personal experience in there and how my players have done. So, from what I'm seeing, these are updates from FantasyPros.com. Uh, uh, so that's where I'm getting my information on. But according to them, number one, player uh, performing of the week was Patrick Mahomes. Uh, obviously, he's going to do well. It's known he is a great quarterback. Quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs, for those of you who may not know. He performed phenomenally in the game, racking up about um, 34.9 fantasy points, really killing out there. Second is my team's quarterback for my fantasy league, Josh Allen, who is Buffalo's uh, quarterback. He got 35 33.5 points for this game and he was really scoring above average uh, he beat the predicted both of these two beat their predicted score by quite a margin and of course having either of these from the get-go would have been a very smart play as in they are very good quarterbacks but you know it's not all about the quarterbacks with uh, fantasy as in we go to our next player Justin Jefferson who was the third best performing, he got 30.4. Uh, he's Minnesota's wide receiver, if you don't know. He played very well in this game. Uh, he has been, he's honestly, I think he is a very underlooked uh, receiver. Uh, he's He played in LSU in college, and I think a lot of people discredit him. And in that game alone, he proved his value to your fantasy team and to you know his real team but uh he pl played very well you got Carson Wentz at four which kind of surprised me as in I didn't expect him to be a big step up quarterback who was going to get a lot done um I expected him to be pretty average this season uh which you know that's not to take anything away from him of what I thought of him I, of course he's a really good quarterback but I expect him to be pretty average this season but he stepped up that first game very big uh Carson Wentz is the uh Washington Commanders uh quarterback if you don't know who he's playing for right now uh and then fifth the fifth player was was Saquon Barkley um he played for he plays for the New York Giants he's their running back 
he played very good, picking up some good yardage, you know, all around what you really want in one of your running backs. And honestly, he was just really good. I want to talk about some of the disappointments of the week, and this isn't to say, you know, these players are bad or anything like that, but they just didn't perform as well as projected or something or another kind of hurt their performance. So one of the ones I have to talk about with week one is Keenan Allen. Uh, Obviously, he got hurt. He tore his hamstring in the game, which really set him back a lot. And it was very unfortunate, you know, to see it. Obviously, I have him on my team, so it hurt me, my team, but also sucked to see because, you know, he, I thought he was going to have a really good season this year, and I was excited to see what he does for the Chargers, see how far he can take them. But he got hurt, so, and he was out. He's out this week, so hopefully he can make a full recovery for his future games, and not just for my team. Obviously, I want to see the man get healthier himself, but we will see how he improves and where he goes from here. Um... Another, these are a lot more my experiences with my player, players, uh, Cam Ackers. I thought he'd be really good as he is, you know, around the Rams running back. But he scored me zero, he scored zero fantasy points. And when you go to his stats in the game, it, I mean, it shows why. He had, he had three touches of the ball, I believe. And it was, according to my uh, review on this, he had three touches, and no yardage. And so that obviously shows how he had, um, you know, scored nothing. But it was still very for- unfortunate to see that. You know, I expected a lot of him as the Rams are coming off that big Super Bowl win. And they, all in all, the Rams really struggled that game. But I see them come back. I can see him come back in a few weeks. It's probably going to take him a little bit to get his mojo back. But as for week one, he was really struggling. And so, predictions this week, again, I think Josh Allen's going to do really good. I think he'll be a great quarterback to put in as, I mean, of course, you know, he's one of the best quarterbacks in the league right now, but uh, he's playing Tennessee, and I think he has a very good matchup there, which will allow him to perform very well. Uh, So, this is Sunday when I'm talking about this, so I don't know how all these games are going to go. I predict that uh, Aaron Jones will actually do very well today. Uh, I'm looking at my players right now, giving you my predictions of my team at least. This is because this is very personable for me, and I feel like I can talk well about them. Uh, I feel like 49ers defense will do well. I'm looking at mine. I don't think Cam Ackers will get it done yet. I think it's going to take me a couple weeks before he gets going. But, um, you know, as for these. Uh, Pittsburgh Steelers defense has been doing well. I can see them doing well. Looking for future. I don't have them on my team and just going out. Otherwise, I can see Hurts doing very, Jalen Hurts doing really well. Uh, DeAndre Swift. Uh, these are some players who did really well last time. Joe Burrow could also perform phenomenally. We'll see. I could be right about some of these. I could be very wrong. But I'm excited to see what happens this week in fantasy. And so uh, I hope your team updates go well. I look forward to seeing what happens with these next few weeks, and let's just keep keep at it. Um, I, I've this is my first really time going full in on fantasy. I've played a little bit of games here and there, and so I'm really excited to share this experience with all of you. And I hope to get to talk with you next time. Thank you so much. Hello, this is Kevin Grubbs, and welcome to my segment here. And we're going to talk about the NASCAR playoffs so far this season. 
as the first round just came to a close after the Bristol Night Race. And the 2022 NASCAR playoffs is already off to a very interesting start. Um, before the playoffs even started back about a month ago at Daytona, Austin Dillon won, clinching the 15th of 16 win and you're in playoff spots, bumping Martin Truex Jr. out of the playoffs. And this was controversial because he's been a top five driver all season. He just failed to get the win. Um, he was in the top five in points all year almost, and it just seemed like he was a guaranteed lock to make it. And under most circumstances, he would. But this year, there were 15 different winners, 16 different winners um, up until the playoffs, 15 actually. And Ryan Blaney had the 16th spot to stay in the playoff. And after that, we had three more winners in the first round. They were all new winners that weren't playoff drivers, being Bubba Wallace, Eric Jones, and Chris Buescher. And it really shook up the playoff grid because normally drivers will automatically lock themselves into the next round by winning. And no one got the opportunity to do that in the first round. And the way things have shaken out this year, especially with the new car, I mean, the durability on these things has been questionable at best. Um, Kevin Harvick, Martin Truex Jr., Kyle Busch have all expressed complaints with the new car. And what's funny about that is Kyle Busch, Kevin Harvick both got eliminated in the first round. And they're two of the five drivers with the most finals appearances, along with Martin Truex, who didn't make the playoffs. The only two of those so-called dominant drivers of the playoff era that are still in um, the hunt for a championship right now is Joey Logano. He's the two seed so far still, and Denny Hamlin at the six seed, who only has four points of cushion between him and the cutoff line right now. Um, if you look below the cutoff line right now, we have Chase Briscoe, Alex Bowman, Daniel Suarez, and Austin Sindrick, but they're only, they're all within three points of each other and all within seven points of Ryan Blaney, who is the eighth seed of the playoffs right now. But Ryan Blaney has been the model of consistency all year. He finished the season, regular season, ranked third in the points. Um, he won a few stages, obviously, to get those playoff points that he has right now. And I really think that he's going to advance to the round of eight um, unless something crazy happens to him. Um, we're looking right now. I don't think Chase Briscoe has had the consistency all year. He's had speed. He's shown flashes of doing great. I mean, he has a win this year, and he's done great. Alex Bowman started off the season so hot, and he just simply fell apart late in the season. As last year, he was one of the more dominant drivers on the schedule. Um, I think he might make the next round. Daniel Suarez, I don't think he's been cons he's been consistent enough. He hasn't made a whole lot of mistakes, but I don't think he's been fast enough. Same thing with Austin Sindrick, who's going to end up getting the Rookie of the Year now. And he won the Daytona 500 to start the season. He was really good late in the season and then started the playoffs. And he's consistent on tracks, and he has good teammates. He might sneak out a win at Talladega is really what I think his only hope of making the next round is, unless he can win at the Roval at Charlotte. But I really think that one's going to come down to our more experienced playoff guys who really can step up their game in these clutch situations. I'm looking at Elliott, Logano, and Chastain. I mean, I know it's cliche to say the top three in points, but those three right now have been the three drivers all season that have just been able to elevate themselves and maybe not necessarily just dominate every race they're in, but they've been the guys that, especially Logano and Chastain, have been able to take cars that have been running 10th to 15th for most of the races and pull out top three or four finishes and even a couple of wins each when I didn't think they had the best car. 
Um, we're going to look at the schedule now for the uh, second round. And the first race is at Texas. Um, this is what a lot of people say is the weak link on the NASCAR schedule and probably the least entertaining race of the year for a lot of people. But the fact that it is a playoff race, there's going to be a lot of storylines, especially after this week when so many cars had issues. 12 of the 16 cars that were in the playoff had either mechanical issues or got involved in a wreck last week at Bristol. So these teams are still on edge, even though Texas isn't nearly as physically demanding of a track as Bristol, especially on equipment. Um, I think that's going to come down to one of the Hendrick cars, probably either Larson or Elliott winning that and advancing themselves into the round of eight. Second race is at Talladega. Um, I'm actually going to be there at that race. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, Logano has been a consistent, and I mean really consistent, restrictor play driver for his entire career. And I'm looking down the list. I think Denny Hamlin is also a driver you can look to win at that one. And Ryan Blaney and Austin Sindrick. I would say the three Penske Fords that are left are all going to work together. I think Chase Briscoe is going to end up getting roped into working with them, whether he really, whether uh, Stuart Haas wants him to or not. I think one of those four will win, probably Logano or Blaney. And then that third race is the Roval, and I think that's a must-win situation for Daniel Suarez and Austin Sindrick, both at that track, but I just don't think either of them are going to be able to pull it out. I think Chase Elliott is probably going to win again if he wins at Texas. I still think he's going to win at the Roval, and if he wins two races at this stage, that puts him in six wins on the season, and that's doubled what anyone is going to be right now, even with Logano, Chastain, Larson, Byron, or Hamlin winning. Six is still going to be double of second place on wins, and I think the second round, once it gets finished, I think the four drivers that are going to be below the cut line right now is going to be Briscoe, Suarez, Sendrick, and maybe Christopher Bell. I think Alex Bowman is going to be able to elevate his game in the best equipment in the field. I think Christopher Bell is, while he is a great talent, I think he's still the weakest link as far as driving talent at Joe Gibbs, but with them only having two drivers left in the playoffs, there might be some pit crew changes we can look forward to seeing. That wouldn't surprise me. Maybe the 18 team or the 19 team sending some crew guys over to the 20 to kind of make that their all-star team as well as the 11 pit crew has been their entire career since Denny Hamlin's been racing that car since 2007. They've been the model of one of the best pit crews in the garage. I don't think they're going to mess that up at all. Um, it's for that last playoff spot for the eighth seed for me to get into the round of eight is really going to come down between Bell and Bowman to me. I don't think Suarez, Sindri, and Briscoe have the speed. I've already said that multiple times. And I think Byron, Larson, I'm not really worried about them winning either of these any of these three races, but I definitely don't see them having any issues at all. Um, Logano and Elliott are going to be the two drivers that I look to say, hey, they're going to be the two guys that step up and dominate the second round. And with that, I think you're going to go ahead, look into the round of eight right now. It's going to be Elliott, Logano, Chastain, Larson, Byron, Hamlin, Blaney, and that eighth spot is going to come down between Bell and Bowman, like I said, and that's going to leave Briscoe, Suarez, and Sendrick with a guaranteed elimination, I think, and then whoever ends up getting the short end of the stick between Christopher Bell and Alex Bowman. This is Gavin Grubbs, and thank you. This is the Rapid Red Wolf Opponent Breakdown Podcast with your host, Brady Michael.
Week 4 brings the opening of Sunbelt Conference play as Arkansas State travels to Norfolk, Virginia to take on what is an interesting Old Dominion squad. To this point, the Monarchs have slayed the in-state Virginia Tech Hokies in what was deemed an upset and were sent back to earth with an 18-point loss to the ECU Pirates. Coming up this week for Ricky Rain's team, they travel to the University of Virginia where they will be roughly 10-point underdogs but have a great shot at taking down yet another in-state rival. Whether or not they come, come into the Arkansas State game carrying a winning record might dictate the mood of the primetime kickoff at 6 p.m. Eastern. In terms of offense, they've only scored 41 total points through two games. The Monarch offense is what Butch Jones and company will need to buckle in for. In terms of their overall stats thus far, points per game is roughly 22.5. The Virginia Tech and ECU defenses that they've faced Turned out to be a little bit better than expected. Brent Pry's Virginia Tech defense is, of course, what he's known for coming from Penn State. And then ECU has a lot of veterans along that defense, especially in the secondary. So that's not the worst stat in the world. Virginia Tech did only allow 10 points in Week 2, uh, in week, yes, in Week 2, while ECU allowed just 21 to a very solid NC State team and Devin Leary in Week 1. The glaring, and I mean absolutely glaring, hole in their offensive production is their third down conversion rate, which sits at 16.67, and on their website sits at 13%. So either way, that horrifying stat comes down to going 4 of 24 on third downs. Total offense between the two games averages down to 269.5 yards per game. Passing has certainly been the key with 220 yards per game. That equates to 81% of their total offense thus far, leaving a depressing 49.5 rush yards per game, and even worse, 2.1 yards per carry, which forces ODU to rely more on the pass than they already have. Hayden Wolf has been the man to take every snap this season behind center. The redshirt sophomore is 99% pocket passer and 1% scrambler. His 6'5", 235-pound frame does make him a little bit more difficult to bring down in the pocket, but ECU got after him in week two, resulting in four sacks. There have been five total this season given up. With negative rushing yards through two games and all of last season, his legs are not a threat. With 440 yards through the air this season, he has tallied three touchdowns and only one interception. Wolf sits at a perfect 50% passing percentage on 64 total attempts. And despite the pedestrian numbers, he does have a bailout at wide receiver that certainly has plans to play on Sundays. Ali Jennings III, a junior, has been an animal when compared to the rest of the receiver room, as well as last year. 13 of Wolf's 32 completions have been to Jennings for a whopping 322 yards. He also holds all three of his touchdowns tossed, which also happened to come in Week 2. Coming into the game in week four, I certainly expect his numbers to surpass 400 yards unless Virginia comes in with some sort of stellar game plan. Standing at six foot two and nearly 200 pounds, he can line up outside or in the slot. It's all about getting the right matchups if you are ODU, and that they do that quite well. Getting the best DB on him will be crucial to slowing down, not stopping, his incredible start. Guys like Talon Doss at corner and Thomas and Smith at safety will need to have impeccable communication come game day. They do have a sleeping giant at tight end that's just waiting to get back into rhythm this season. It's a guy that I personally like. Six foot eight Zach Kuntz 
Not only is the matchup nightmare due to his size, but he can climb the ladder and get the football at 250 pounds. Despite only having two catches this season for 12 yards, his 2021 season brought 692 receiving yards on 73 catches. He apparently did have a hell of an offseason according to ODU insiders. Let's just hope that he keeps it bottled until week five. As for the running back room, the name to know is Blake Watson, a very experienced back. He can pack a punch for his 5'9 frame. Stat-wise, he has earned 25 carries for only 105 total yards this season and one touchdown. Last season, he did account for over 1,000 yards rushing, so I won't discount his ability despite the running game being virtually a non-factor this season. The two keys for A-State's defense will be to, one, limit the catches to Jennings out wide because his numbers really start to add up. Just ask ECU about his 200-yard game last week. Secondly, pressure Wolf. You really don't need sacks to disrupt their offense. Just keep him uncomfortable, and he's more likely to put the ball in danger. He does have a big arm, which does tend to lead to a few overthrows. As an added bonus, ODU has suffered from a lack of time of possession, especially against ECU, which they lost that battle 19 minutes and change to 41 minutes and change. If Coach Heckendorf wants to slow down the pace of his offense, it could be vital to replicating that. Shifting to defense, if the Red Wolf offense can come out firing against the Monarchs, it could be a long day for ODU playing catch-up, even though they are certainly capable of doing it. While giving up an average of 28 points per game, through two games isn't pure atrocity. It is inflated by a talented ECU offense and Holton Aylers in Week 2. They have given up a, a pretty big 432 yards per game, which is a notable stat line. When broken down via the pass and rush, it almost checks out with Arkansas State's averages through two games on offense. ODU has given up 233.5 pass yards per game, while A-State averages 228. Rushing, they have given up 195 yards per game, while A-State averages 196. Talk about playing right into the game plan in terms of play success for Blackman and the offense. The leading tackler is their inside linebacker, Jason Henderson. He's built like a box in the middle. The sophomore has 30 tackles this season and also a half a sack. Henderson sits in the middle of ODU's constant three linebacker set that is either a 4-3 or 3-3-5 nickel formation. Against ECU, they threw a 4-2-5 at him, which forced Henderson to be the pri primary play diagnoser. And unfortunately for the Monarchs, his youth sometimes gets the best of him. His first step isn't always made out of confidence, which resulted in running backs for ECU, especially Keaton Mitchell, blasting by him multiple times. And that brings up a way to take him out of the game for the offensive line, which will be to bring some creative blocking schemes to Norfolk intentionally forcing him out of the play or just doing a solid job getting to the second level in the running game could be what eliminates the leading tackler. And in terms of getting after the quarterback, Old Dominion has four total sacks this year, three of them coming in week two against ECU. No player on the roster has more than one sack to his name this season, but there are a couple to mention that have yet to snag one this year. Senior defensive end Marcus Haynes was arguably their best pass rusher a year ago. He racked up four and a half sacks in 2021. Is a guy that became a consistent threat to reach the quarterback but hasn't returned to that status this year. The other one on the opposite side of the line, Amori Morrison, as a freshman last year, last year gathered four sacks and route to 34 tackles, and he only has eight through two games this year. The A-State O-line should need to keep it that way when it comes to game time. Overall, their front seven is a solid blend of maturity and youth. 
so it will be important to maximize opportunities against the less experienced players along that front. The ODU secondary stands in roughly the same boat as the D-line and linebackers when it comes to veterans versus youth. Being the primary difference maker is corner Trey Hawkins III. It's odd how their best player on either side of the ball has the third in their name. And he is a six foot three senior. A season ago, he tallied 76 total tackles, which included 55 solos and a forced fumble. This season, he's racked up 11 tackles and has been tested and denied with three pass deflections. The emergence of Fleming's for the Red Bulls will likely be his primary matchup, which I will say will give Champ the advantage in either the slot or working outside, especially with the return of Tavalence Hunt. Keeping Hawkins off the ball will be another big influence to how much success the offense will have on September 24th. As far as the game goes, if the offense that showed up in weeks one and two rolls into Norfolk, then I expect Blackman, Lang, and company to outlast a potent ODU offense. Likely a solid crowd for the game. I don't see it playing much of a factor. As Arkansas State should win by two scores in a shootout. Hey guys, it's Lee. Welcome to the Naked Truth of the NIL. Starting off, if you guys don't know what NIL stands for, it's name, image, and likeness. This is something that has been new to the NCAA in college athletics very recently, and it allows college athletes to be able to be paid for the work they put in on the field or court or wherever the case may be. So there has been a lot of skepticism about NIL and there have been a lot of different opinions about NIL. And for this episode, I am going to share my personal opinions and my personal experience for NIL. But after this week, it will be strictly information that I've found, information that I've been able to experience, and it won't be as much of my opinion, just more informative. So starting off, this summer I had the opportunity to work in different areas of NIL with different clients. I am not disclosed to say who those clients were or where I worked, but um, I was able to learn how NIL works. I was able to learn what it actually meant, and what the players expected. And it was very eye-opening to me to see how these 20-year-olds are acting because of the money that they are receiving or the money they haven't received. So to begin, first off, I want to say that my opinions are my opinions. Not everybody's going to feel the same as I do, and that's okay. But... um. For me, I personally think that NIL is a great opportunity for athletes to be able to get paid because they do put in a lot of work whenever they play sports. And working in college, well, when you're an athlete in college, that's your job. So the opportunity to get paid is just remarkable for these athletes because they don't have the time to actually go out and get a 9-to-5 job because their 9-to-5 job is practicing and getting better and ultimately just wanting to play on the field or the court wherever the case may be. So I think that the idea of NIL is a really great idea but I think that we have closed it off so much to a specific group of people that it needs to be broad and if we're going to do it we are going to have to be able to have opportunities for everyone and not just football players, not just volleyball players, not just soccer players not just SEC, not just Sunbelt, everything. And I think that is something that the NCAA is going to have to change, as well as the amount of money that athletes receive. For example, Bryce Young, 
Alabama quarterback, Heisman winner. He is getting paid millions of dollars. His net worth already at 20 years old is more than I will ever make in my life. And it is just crazy to think that he is probably making the money he is right now because he is the quarterback at Alabama, which is now the number one ranked team in the SEC. And it is just crazy to think that if he were somewhere else, he might not be getting paid that much. But not to say that Bryce is not a great quarterback. He is. He's great. He's amazing. But if we are going to put Bryce on this pedestal of getting millions of dollars, having these major, major sponsors, we need to look at the other people that are involved in different categories like different conferences I mean there are amazing amazing players in the Sunbelt Conference and they are not even getting a quarter of what Bryce Young is getting paid I can't tell you a single player at Arkansas State University that has an NIL deal not saying that we should be put on the same level as Bryce Young but I do think if we are going to pay college athletes for their the amount that they play and how well they play then it all needs to be the same, not depending on what school they go to, not depending on what rank their school is, not depending on how big their school is, not depending on how big the program is. Not everyone is a football school. Not everyone is a volleyball school. Not everyone is a soccer school. Not everyone's golf. Not everyone's basketball. But I do think if we are going to do this, we are going to have to be very exclusive to everyone and not just football players, not just SEC football players, not just Offense, offensive players, not just defensive players. And I will say, working with NIL clients, I know how hard it is to brand someone that's on defense. And they could be the best defensive player ever, but businesses just don't want to give them money because their position is so hard to sell. They're not the ones running and making touchdowns. They're not the ones throwing touchdowns. And so it's very difficult for businesses to be able to say, okay, yes, I will give them a million dollars because I know how well they are. These businesses are not paying attention to the games on Saturday. These businesses don't know. And I think it also is scary to see how these 20-year-olds are handling their money. And it's going to be scary to see if the NCAA does not change the rules of NIL and just does not narrow it down that these high schoolers going into college are not going to be okay because used to football players they would go to college on a football scholarship just to play football they would walk on at a college just to play football because they loved the game and their dream was to get to the NFL not because of the money but because they love the game the money was just extra but now because we are offering money in college we have to figure out if they are going to the NFL because they love the game or because they want more money, because they're not getting enough. And not saying every athlete is like this, I don't believe that they are, but we are going to have to make some rules and regulations on how we want these players to to be perceived. But this is putting so much pressure on different players all across the world because they have to one-up each other. If they don't play good on Saturday, if they don't throw this amount of touchdowns, they're not getting a million dollars. That could be money that is going to their parents' medical bills, their parents' rent, their parents' mortgage. And if they don't get that, they might not have a house. Like, it's 
just so hard putting these athletes on a pedestal when they don't deserve it. If they, if it's based on how hard they work, we need to prove it to them and not just hand out a bunch of money, but also make it to where they earn it. And because it's the love of the game, not because they want to be rich and famous. Now, that is all that I have for this week's episode on the naked truth of the NIL. And next week, we will talk about a little bit more different things that are a little less heated. But thank you for tuning in, and I'll see you next week. How's it going, everybody? My name is Colby Wood, and in my segment, I talk about the Memphis Grizzlies. On this episode today, we're going to talk about the Grizzlies and their history. From 1995 to 2001, the Grizzlies played in Vancouver. We were an expansion team off into Canada along with the Toronto Raptors. But unlike the Raptors, we weren't as relative and we weren't as great of a team. So we ended up relocating to Memphis. From 2002 to current, we have been in Memphis. And from 2002 to 2004, the Grizzlies played in the Pyramid. And we ended up moving into the FedEx Forum. But let me backtrack just a minute. We drafted Pau Gasol in 2002, and he was Rookie of the Year. We drafted Shane Battier, who was also a fan favorite. So we had some promise, and we had some relevancy in the city of Memphis. But in 2004, we made uh, the playoffs for the first time as the sixth seed. And we did end up losing 4-0 to the Spurs. Jumping off into 2005, we were swept again by the Suns. But we ended up getting veterans such as Damon Studemeyer and Eddie Jones. So you would think we were pretty good in 2006, right? Well, in 2006, we were swept again uh, as the fifth seed by the Mavs. And in the following year, Pau Gasol was hurt. He broke his foot playing for Spain. And in the 2006 and seven season, we were actually a league worst, uh, 22 and 60. Jerry West, who was our general manager, ended up resigning as a GM. We fell to the fourth pick somehow in the 2007 NBA draft. And we got Mike Conley, where we could have had Kevin Durant. We got Mike Conley, but we weren't complaining because, well, we, we aren't going to complain now because Mike Conley was a stud in Memphis. He was a, gr- a great player for the city, a great guy. February 1st, 2008, Pau Gasol was traded to the Lakers for a few different players, but most notably for his brother, Mark Gasol. We got the rights to Mark. In 2009, we hired Lionel Hollins as a head coach, and we drafted Hashim to beat second overall. 2009, we also signed Allen Iverson to a one-year deal, but he only played three games before he left for personal problems, which I had no idea until recently. I did some research on the Grizzlies and when I, I knew that Allen Iverson played for the Grizzlies, but I didn't realize he only played three games. Sometimes Grizzlies fans make a big deal that he played for the team, but I, I had no clue he only played three games, so that kind of shocked me. So he was waived. We got Zach Randolph July 2009 in a trade, so that was big for us. We didn't realize at the time. We just needed some, some grit, which we'll get to in a minute, but Zach Randolph was huge for us. 2009, we got him. So from 2010 to 2017, Grit and grind was in full effect. 2010 and 11 season was a huge year in Memphis because we celebrated the 10th year playing in Memphis. We finished the 2010-11 season with a 46-36 and record and the 8th spot in the playoffs. We ended up trading Hashim Thabit, who, let's just be honest, turned out to be a bust. 
We traded him to the Rockets and got Shane Battier back. April 17th, 2011, we got our first playoff win against the Spurs. I just love how that happened. Ten year in Memphis, you know, first playoff win, you know, finally happened. But not only that, we beat the Spurs 4-2 in the series, who were the first seed. We beat the first seed Spurs as an eighth seed. and But we ended up losing to the Thunder in the second round. But I still remember that playoff series is still talked about today, how we beat the, the first seed Spurs, who were supposed to win it all that year. So that was great. Even though we ended up losing to the Thunder in the second round, we still overachieved, I would say, for the year. 2011 and 12 season, we lost to the Clippers in the first round. But the team was sold to Robert Perra, so maybe we had some promise. 2013, we traded Rudy Gay to the Raptors. The 2012 and 13 season ended up being our best season to date. 56 and a 26 record, fifth seed, Marcus All, Defensive Player of the Year. We beat the Clippers in the first round, and we beat OKC in the semifinals. We lost to the Spurs in the Western Conference Finals, but this is massive improvement. 2013-14 season, we lost to the Thunder in the first round. 2014-15 season, we beat the Trailblazers in the first round. This is the year where Mike Conley took an elbow to the face, broke his face, ended up wearing a face mask, and he came back in the Golden State series after we beat the Trailblazers and tore it up. You know, he, he had no right going out there and doing what he did, playing as hard as he did, as great as he did, with a broken face. Even though we ended up losing to Golden State in six, Mike Conley really left his mark on the floor. 2015-16 season, we lost to the Spurs as a seventh seed in the first round. 2016-17 season, we did the same. Lost to the Spurs as a seventh seed in the first round. 2017-18 season, we didn't make the playoffs for the first time since the 2009 and 10 season. But after that season, we drafted Jaron Jackson Jr. In the 2018-19 season, we traded Mark Gasol to the Raptors, who ended up winning a championship with the Raptors. So good for Mark. We traded him for Jonas Valanciunas, but we did not make the playoffs. The 2019 draft, uh, we drafted John Morant with a second pick. Let's go. John Morant got Rookie of the Year. We lost to the Trailblazers in the bubble in the play-in game. But John Morant, man, he you could you could tell he's going to be the franchise player. Well, you knew that before the season started, but he really solidified himself as such. The 2019-20, uh, sorry, 2020-21 season, we lost to Utah, who was the first seed uh, in five. We were the eighth seed. 2021-22 season, which was last season, we were the second best in the league record-wise. Job was most improved, which he was also an MVP candidate, so it was weird that he was a most improved candidate, but he did get most improved, ended up giving the trophy to Desmond Bain. But we lost to Golden State in the second round, which was a dogfight. Jaw really solidified himself as a top 10 NBA player this season. And I'm really, really, really excited for what's to come. Thanks for listening to this episode, and I'll catch you in the next one. Hey, y'all. This is James Lowry. I'm coming to you with my new podcast, Jay's Film Room, NFL edition. So I'm going to bring to you a question every week, basically breaking down the game, the NFL's hottest game of the week. So let's get into it. Hmm. Why are the Cowboys on one? Like, what's going on there? You scored three points total overall in your opening night. Second in franchise history. That's your second lowest points. 
behind your six points in 1989 when Jimmy Johnson first became the coach and eventually became a dynasty. Dak fractured his bone in his hand. He fractured a bone in his hand near his thumb. He's not going to be placed on injured reserve, but he will be uh, out for at least four weeks. And so now we have to manage to make some big wins with Cooper Rush as our backup. Tom Brady. Classic Tom Brady, the 45-year-old. Went 18 for 27, 212 yards, a touchdown, and an interception. So, yeah. Leonard Fournette had 21 carries, 127 yards on the night. Mike Evans, 5 receptions, 71 yards, and a touchdown. So, yeah, they were clicking on all cylinders with within this first week. Dallas, on the other hand, on offense. Dak, 14 of 29. 134 yards, no touchdowns, one INT. Elliott, 10 rushes, and 52 yards. Like, yeah, that's not going to cut it. Nico Brown, 5 receptions, 68 yards. Dalton Schultz, 7 receptions, 62 yards. C.D. Lamb, uh, poor, 2 receptions, and 29 yards. Brother, what's going on there? Like, that's not going to cut it, guys. We're last in the NFC East. We the, we're the only team that lost in the division on Sunday. The Eagles, the Giants, and the Commanders all won on Sunday, except us. We allowed 347 yards total. Total. The whole game, 347 yards. 152 of those yards allowed were rushing. So you allowed 43% of the total yards to be rushed but on your defense. That's just completely sad. So here's my solution for you guys. We have to be more proficient on offense. Like, Dak, you cannot complete 48% of your passes and expect to be an MVP candidate. Like, that is not going to work. You guys have got to be more mindful and more assertive about what's going on on the offense. Like, we just looked like we had not had an offseason at all. Three points. Three points. That is just it's completely sad. I'm sorry. Zeke has to gain more than 52 yards. You want to be claimed as one of the top running backs in the league. Yes, you will have nice size, have nice speed. Yes, you've gotten back healthy. But 52 yards, that's not going to win us games. You have to. You, I'm not saying you need to go out and get it 115 yards every game. No. But you need to at least be able to maintain at least an 80-yard rushing game. Our defense has to know not to give up big plays. They gave up 4.6 yards per rush during this game. That's just completely outrageous. Every play you every play that they rushed the ball, you you're getting rid of at least 6 yards from your first down. That's just sad. Overall, they just need to do better than last week, or it's going to be a long season. A very long season. So, <laughs> I don't know what else to say. You guys just 
really need to get it together. <laughs> Their next matchup is the Super Bowl contending Cincinnati Bengals. They also lost in a quick overtime. That's a very heartbreaking overtime loss last week. And the Bucks are playing New Orleans 1-0, going against Jameis Winston and the Saints. So this will be it for this week's segment. I'm James Lowry in Jay's Film Room. See you. Hello. Today we will talk about European soccer in September. First one, uh, Arsenal, which had won five uh, consecutive Premier League titles, lost to Manchester United, which had not performed well. Uh, so historically, the Old Trafford away game has been tough for Arsenal, but it's been a bit of an amazing game because of good performance so far. Coming in the end of the transfer market, Anthony scored an amazing debut goal in the match, giving Manchester United a good performance, good, good performance under a coach Ten Hag. And Erling Haaland scoring ability in Manchester City is very amazing this season. Manchester City, which have not lost a single game in the last seven games, are showing remarkable performance as Kevin De Bruyne and Erling Haaland are getting together. Erling Haaland, who is the top of the Premier League scoring with a ridiculous and amazing scoring ability of 11 goals in the seven games, is looking forward to how many goals he will score in total this season. Tottenham Hotspur, which has very uh, active in the summer transfer market, often shows that they are not in getting together yet. Yeah, of course, there has been no losing games so far, but Son Heung-min and Harry Kane's amazing performance last season seems to have decreased somewhat. In the game against uh, Rester City on the 18th, Son Heung-min started game on a bench as a substitute. This was very surprising decision, although the decision was made by Conte, the coach, due to a poor performance in the early stage of the league by Son Heung-min, who won the top scorer last season. Uh, He was put on the field around 60 minutes of the second half and was selected to a man of the match by scoring a hat-trick within uh, 13 minutes. Midday scores from last week. Now, last week, like I said earlier in the show, Arkansas State well, um, hosted Gremlin State and was able to come out with a 58-3 stomping of Gremlin State, where Jax Blackman completed 15 for 20 for 210 yards, two touchdowns, no interception, where he also rushed for two more touchdowns in the win. Now, A.J. Mayer, who is a backup quarterback for Arkansas State, was 5 for 6 in the game and for, for 23, 23 yards, but what he can do, like he can run. Jack Magman could throw. Like I, he showed he can run. He he's capable of running the ball when needed to. But when I tell you, Edge and Mary can run. We got we finally got a running game now for Nelson. Um, Nelson, um, they they hosted. There was they they um, 
they went to Pocahontas where Nelson came out on top of 26-21 where it was a back and forth game. Both teams competitive, both teams back and forth, and like this is what you love in high school football, like a competitive game. And it was just a fun atmosphere to watch because, because like for instance, like Nelson have not lost a regular season game yet. They're two and on the season right now, and they're gonna, they need to keep on that momentum against a good Blackville team. Now Jonesboro, who traveled to Lake Hamilton, fell to Lake Hamilton twenty six to twenty one to fall on zero two on the season. Now for a view, they traveled to Poplar Bluff where they um lost sixteen to two. So then for Westside, Westside was had a home game against Hawksley where they came out with a, a thrilling 21-19 victory. Now for volleyball. Now A-State was in a tournament where in game one, A-State um, played Western Illinois where Arkansas State pulled out a, a 3-2 victory over Western Illinois where um, Macy Putt, who was returning, returning for the Red Wolves, with, uh, had led the team in kills on 19, where Ellis Wilcox had two aces. Yasmin Billing, a newcomer for this team, had seven blocks. And Laura Mustang, who's a returner for this Arkansas State team from a year ago, had 49 assists, where Macy Putt, who is tremendous, that she is really talented, had 13 digs. Now, this, let's talk about this first game real quick. This game was competitive. Each day was competitive. Like, like for this a-State ball team, it's a question of unknown. Because you got a new head coach and in Brian Goodwig, who's like who's not he's very familiar for the city of Jonesboro and Arthur State because he was um part of the assistant coach at Arthur State a couple years ago before leaving the um follow the head coach to Houston where a very talented Houston team. And his first game back, like he they you could tell they bought into what he's trying to do for this team, trying to get this team back to where it used to be, like on top of the standings. And it's showing this game. I like what what this team is at. And game two, Arkansas State was able to beat Alabama A.M. three sets to nine, where Macy put led the um, team in kills with eleven. Macy put also led the team in aces with three. Where Yasmin Billion, a young a young talented player for this newcomer for this Arkansas State team, led the team in blocks with three. Now Laura Mustaine had twenty five assists, which you continue that uh, you want her on. Her your this team. She is really um she's she is really needed on this team. She helped this team she do a lot of different things for this team and this is what you want in your leaders. And that she's a returner. She knows she knows um what's needed what needed from her to have success on this team um this season. And Sarah Mar- Sarah Martinez led the team in days with thirteen. Now in game three, Arsenal State was able to beat UT Martin three sets to one where in this game Macy Putt had 18 kills. Laura Mustaine led the team with aces and blocks with four aces and 40 blocks. And where Sarah Martinez continued to um to light it up and assist was 16. Now for the high school. Now Nelson fell to Marion three three to nothing three sets to none to fall on three on the season. Five you fall to Brooklyn three to one. To drop to four and two on the season, Westside pick up a, a really good win against a good Holland team, three three sets to none to prove three and one. Where JHS, who was my pick last year, to that had a tremendous team last season, and they got almost everybody coming back this year, and got some talent. They picked up a 
a three nothing win, a three six to nine win over Bright in the previous four one. For A State soccer, Arkansas State women's soccer pulled out a one nothing Missouri State team to prove the two and two and two on the season. Now, I want to do midday midday player of the game. When I'm thinking about like. The first game I chose for midday Lamar Piss of the day is A State at Ohio State. This game, there's no question Ohio State is going to win this game. Ohio State, is, they got like, they got so many like so many NFL future NFL draft picks. They always send guys to the, like players to the NFL. They always play at a high level. They're real coach by running day. I'm like they recruit well. I'm like A State, yes. I, I would love to A State pull us up, but this Ohio State got more talent. I'm going Ohio State. Now Nelson versus Blavel. This game, it could go either way, but I'm leaning towards Nelson. I like Nelson defense. Like they're playing well right now. Offensively, this team is a lot better, a little bit more better, and they move the ball better than they did last season. For that, I'm going for Nelson in this game. Now. For volleyball, Jonesboro at Wheaton. This is gonna be a high game, a high profile game. But to me, this is this is one of the games of the week for me. Like this is one of my one of my choices with me game week. This is two high profile teams are really talented. When put some, when got some talented roster. This game is hard to choose because like I like both teams, but I'm leaning towards winning this one. I. When he has too much experience, I got experience that playing around right now, I play at a high level. I like, I gotta go win. My, my guts tell me win. Now, Vibe versus Rivercrest. In this game, this is gonna be an instant, like, this is a really good, this is gonna be an interesting game. Because Rivercrest have success, like, have tradition of winning year in, year out, going against a very talented Vibe team, which they don't have much. They had a tremendous defense last year, but they lost a lot on that def- the defense side of the ball from a year ago. I'm leaning towards River Christmas. I like this too. It's too much. It's too much points in River Christmas in this game, and I like River Chris. But I'm not sleeping on Valley View. Valley View is a really talented school. Like, they play hard. They play hard every game. They play hard. The past couple of games that I saw. They played. They played. They should have been two and zero. It could be two and zero this season. But I got. I'm leaving. With River Chris. A State versus Western Kentucky for soccer. This game, I'm leaning towards Western Kentucky. I last couple of games I've been watching, listen, watching, watching for this A State. They having trouble scoring, like getting goals. And I worry about that. Yes, they, I, I already know when every every um, coach Brian Lewis team they got a great defense, but I. They they having trouble scoring this past couple of games. Like they, it's take like. Games like that, one of the games that could have pulled out a victory, they could not score. I'm leaning towards West Kentucky. West Kentucky is really talented. If A-State can score, I might go all the way. But A-State haven't shown me that can score consistently for me to pick them. I'm going with West Kentucky. Welcome to the Cowboys postgame show with Tyler Marston. Today is September 18th. Uh, the Dallas Cowboys just beat the defending AFC champion Cincinnati Bengals with a walk-off field goal by Brett Maher. 
Uh, it was awesome, a much needed turnaround from last week, uh, but we will get into all of that in just a moment. I'm your host, Tyler Marston, and this is Cowboys Post Game Show. Today we're going to talk about the loss in week one against Tom Brady and the Buccaneers and Dak's injury and everything that had to do with that, as well as uh, a kind of a breakdown of today's game against the Bengals. Uh, so starting off with last week, uh, honestly, it was it was terrible. Um, you know, straight up, you can't lie. Uh, it was really bad. Uh, of course, the Cowboys lost to Tampa Bay and Tom Brady 19-3. to uh, We had a terrible offense that game. Um, zero touchdowns, zero points after the first possession. The, fir- the first field goal came on the first possession, and we, we did not score again. Not only that, but... The Cowboys never appeared in the red zone the entire game. Uh, it's insane. There was just a complete inability to move the ball downfield. Um, just something was not working right. Tampa's defense was was all over Dak Prescott and especially over our wide receivers. Um, you know the the ones that are left after you know uh, leaving Amari Cooper and and uh, Cedric Wilson. You know so. Um, uh, the receiving core was in pretty pretty bad shape last week. Luckily, we were able to get over some of that, but uh, even still today, there were some problems with the receiving core. Regardless, though, the bright side was that the defense uh, was still able to hold the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to only 19 points, um, which was pretty impressive, all things considered, especially considering how long they were on the field and, and just how terrible the offense was doing. They even had an interceptions, and we had... Two sacks from Micah Parsons, uh, which were back-to-back, I might add, against one of the strongest O-lines in the NFL right now. So really, uh, you know, the defense was the highlight of that game, but even the defense wasn't able to uh, work miracles when you have, you know, zero red zone appearances, zero points after the first possession, and no touchdowns. It really was uh, quite embarrassing for the uh, Cowboys. And of course, you know, the the biggest story coming out of that game was Dak Prescott's injury. Uh, He had two hits to his hands late in the game, and he had to have surgery this past week, which meant that today we got Cooper Rush starting his second career NFL start. Um, And if you remember, last season uh, was Cooper Rush's first start for the Cowboys uh, when Dak was benched for fear of further injury to his ankle. Uh, and he led the Cowboys to a final two-minute game-winning drive over the Vikings. Um, and he did that same thing again today against the Bengals. So uh, today, Cooper Rush, in his second career start, he played pretty all right. He went 19 for 31, 7.6 average yards with one touchdown and only one sack. Uh, so ab- about the same as the game he played against the Vikings uh, where he went 20 for four, 24 for 40 with an 8.1 average, two touchdowns, one interceptions, and three sacks. Uh, so really, you know, Cooper Rush is, is kind of a special backup. It seems whenever he starts games that uh, there's just something different. And, uh, and, you know, regardless of what happens in the game, those final two minutes uh, really always come down to the wire with Cooper Rush. We'll see uh, how he continues to handle that this upcoming season. Of course, the rest of the thoughts on today's game, uh, we had two touchdowns, one from Cooper Rush to Noah Brown on the first possession and a Tony Pollard one-yard rushing touchdown on the second possession. And that was uh, the rest of the offense until about the final few minutes of the game, honestly. 
the only point scored in the second half was the game-winning field goal. And um, while the offense was better than last week for sure, where there was practically nothing, uh, it's not as elite as it was last season. Um, meanwhile, the defense uh, is also showing some improvements from uh, last week. We had six sacks this week. Once again, we had two from Mike Parsons, uh, which of course should be expected against one of the you know weakest O-lines in the NFL. Uh, but we held the Bengals to 17 points. Uh, against a, a reasonably tough offense with Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase, uh, you know, of course, besides their offensive line, they've, they've got some really good offensive playmakers. Um, again, the defense looked really tired in the second half, though, and that was probably because they were on the field for so long because we did nothing but punt uh, in the second half except for the final game-winning field goal. Uh, speaking of which, let's talk about that real quick. Brett Maher. Uh, he had two field goals in this game. Both were from 50 yards out at, at least, and uh, there was one at the end of each half. Uh, much, much needed improvement over Greg Zerlin from last season, in my opinion. Uh, but it seems like he's able to get the job done. He's he's good in the clutch moments, so I'm really appreciative of Brett Maher leading the Cowboys to victory today. Uh, and so next week, the Cowboys are playing the Giants on Monday Night Football. Uh, the Giants beat the Panthers 19-16 today. Um, so, you know, not anything crazy from the Giants, but just hoping that uh, that the Cowboys will be able to, uh, to, to beat them next week. Of course, what needs to change is that the offense needs to play the whole game. Um, you can't score on the first two possessions, score touchdowns on the first two possessions and then not score any touchdowns for the rest of the game. You, you got to be able to play for the whole game, especially down the line in the season. Uh, And that way that our stacked defense uh, can be a lot less tired. Uh, You know, Micah Parsons, I'm sure, can get more sacks uh, if he's not on the field all the time. So that has been your Cowboys post-game updates. I'm Tyler Marston. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Talking Sports with Sports Programming.